There we go now. Hey, look at that. I'm unhooked in the back, so if you suddenly see me flailing around like a fish, that just means that the wire came loose, and we'll figure that all out in a minute. The scripture this morning is Matthew 17. Matthew 17, 21 through 27. Matthew 17, 21 through 27. It says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, Yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? When Peter replied, from others, Jesus said, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Back in 1998, Marine General Charles Krulak was making one last delivery on Christmas Day to a Marine Corps Combat Development Command headquarters at Quantico, and when he got to the gate, he asked the Marine on duty who the officer of the day was. The young Marine said, Sir, it's Brigadier General Mattis. Krulak thought the Marine must have misunderstood him, and so he asked again, but he got the same answer. Finally, General Krulak got out of his uh, truck, walked inside, and looked around the duty hut, and then in the back, and there were two cots, one for the officer of the day, one for a young Marine. He said, Okay, son, let me cut straight through this. Who was the officer who slept in that bed last night? And he said, I, I said to him, the Marine said, Sir, Brigadier General Mattis. Now just so you understand, a Brigadier General being officer of the day is completely unheard of. This is maybe major duty at, 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 the, at the most. At that moment, General Mattis walked around the corner. So I said to him, Jim, what are you standing duty for? And he said, Sir... I looked at the duty roster for today, and there was a young major who had it, who was married and had a family, and I'm a bachelor. I thought, why should he miss out on all the major fun of Christmas with his family? And so I told him I would take the duty for him today. I thought about that story a few weeks ago when Andy was talking about servant leadership. The idea that the servant leadership has become a huge thing in... Um, business and churches are even starting to get some servant leadership books and it's funny because servant leadership really begins ultimately with Jesus and all throughout the scripture we have examples of Jesus uh, foregoing his rights as uh, the son of God and stepping into that of a humble servant and the beneficiaries of all of that are you and I and that's what we have this morning there is uh, a thing uh, from all the way back in Exodus 30 called the temple tax. And this was not a bad tax like you hear them talk about with Roman government and how they're, you know, they, they tax without representation or anything. This really this purpose was to pay for the needs of the temple, to make sure the upkeep was taken care of, to make sure that the sacrifices could be purchased, that people could make blood sacrifices every year for the entire community. And it was expected that any male over 20 had to once a year pay into the temple tax. It was the, old, the original equivalent of the building fund, for those of you who have been around church long enough to know what a building fund is. And so um, P. 
Peter is coming in, in his hometown. Jesus is at his house. Peter is, is headed home. And some Jewish people whose job was to collect that two drachma temple tax came to Peter and said, doesn't your uh, master pay the two uh, drachma tax? Now, Peter answers, absolutely. Of course he does. You bet. Honestly, absolutely. How does Peter know? Was it a conversation? Clearly we're going to find out that Peter probably didn't know because of the way Jesus responded to it. A lot of people have a lot of theories on this. Some people say, well, Peter said it because he was just sure Jesus would do it. Some people said Peter said it because he was just sure that uh, Jesus probably had already done it. Uh, some people, if you look at Peter's personality, thought yes is the easiest answer to give right now. And so that's the answer I'm going to come up with. I could kind of see Peter doing that. I could kind of see myself doing that. And it probably was only after someone like me walked away from that answer that he went, wait a second, does he? I don't know. And so he's got to walk all the way home, and he's got to have this uncomfortable conversation with Jesus. What happens if Jesus says he doesn't pay it? Peter's got to come up with the money. Now this tax, just so you're aware, would equal about a week's pay. Basically, you're talking about, you know, at minimum, $1,000 that Peter doesn't have that if Jesus isn't going to pay it, he's going to have to come up with. And so Peter probably has this on his mind as he is coming home about this tax. But he walks in, and Jesus, is, uh, before he starts the conversation, Jesus' first question is, tell me, Peter, do you think if someone is a son of the king, they pay taxes? Or do you think the king charges those taxes of the people that are in the kingdom, but not the son of the king? Because it makes sense if the king is a ruler and the family is a ruler, for a son to pay taxes would be like the king taking the money out of his right pocket and putting it into his left pocket. Because that's, that's basically where the son would have gotten his money from. And so Peter says, no, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do it that way. And so Peter is getting Jesus, Jesus is getting Peter to understand that the sons of the king don't pay taxes. They're exempt. They're free. What's the point Jesus is making here? Who are the sons that are free and how are they free? Well, I think verse 27 offers some clues there when he says, uh, when he tells you how, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish that comes up. But it's how he gets the money. When you open the mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus is starting to give a clue if he's getting a coin and he's paying that tax, who's he paying it for? He's paying it for Peter, and he's paying it for Jesus. So the comparisons between the king of the earth and God, and between the king's sons and Jesus with his disciples. Jesus is taking the opportunity of a simple question on a road to start to teach Peter more about the identity of who Jesus is, and about the identity of who we are in Christ. Remember, it was just chapter 16 where Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. This is really the first time somebody has understood who Jesus is. And so he's really in his infancy steps of starting to realize what it means that the gentleman that you've been with for the last couple of years is the Messiah, is the promised one, is the one that's to come. And so every opportunity from then on out for Peter and for Jesus is to understand life through the lens of what it's like to be with the Messiah. Let me grab my, my space here a second. 
as I said, keep in mind here, this temple tax has nothing to do with the Romans. This is a Jewish tax. So if Jesus is making a distinction between the sons who are free and another group who are not free, he's not talking about Romans and Jews. He's making a distinction with inside God's people. He's saying there are people inside that are going to be free, and there are people that are inside who aren't there. Now, he's not the first one to do this. John the Baptist did this before him. Paul is going to do it later. John the Baptist called for Israel to repent and be part of a new, true Israel and not to boast. We have Abraham as our father, as it was said earlier. If mere Jewish descent made one a child of God. Then Paul in Romans said, Not all Israel is Israel. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. So the answer is that the strangers, the citizens and inhabitants who are not free are the Jewish people who are rejecting Jesus as the Son of God, or in this case, who haven't yet realized that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who trust and follow him are the sons of God because of who we are in relationship to Jesus. Back in Matthew 16, remember, Jesus said, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus said, speaking to the disciples, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now it's true that Israel was called the Son of God in the Old Testament, but Jesus here is making a new distinction, that that sonship in the Old Testament was really based on who you were in your community, who you were as a people, who you were at large, who your parents were. And Jesus is saying, now your relationship is going to come through me, through Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Jesus is making the relationship personal. And he makes it personal by saying, you have to follow me. And now he's making it personal by saying that there is this temple over here, and it costs money to run the temple. And it's required that we pay to run this temple because without it, people can't make sacrifices. And without making sacrifices, they can't be right with God. But I'm telling you there's the next step, and it's more personal. And it comes through me. And coming through me, you're a child of the Father. And my family doesn't pay that tax. Let me be clear, my family doesn't have to pay that tax. Why? Because ultimately Jesus, and I'll talk about this in a minute, is going to be the replacement for that temple. Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, also heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, we're in the family. We are as much a part of it as any, anybody else would be. You know, I thought about this, and I, I, had, I know I've shared many times that I grew up with uh, a grandma, an aunt, and a mom who took in foster kids all the time. And uh, I was talking to somebody who had grown up in a uh, foster family and was actually adopted after they turned 18 because it was something that the mom and dad had, had wanted to do. And that's when they realized in our conversations that all of the kids that were in my grandma's house were never adopted. They were all foster kids all the way through to their adulthood. And the person said, well, why wouldn't she have made them part of the entire family? And I thought about it, and it never came up. They were, my grandma's name is Brashler. My grandpa's name is Brashler. They were Brashlers. It was Michael Brashler. I was an adult when I learned that Michael's real name was Michael Hare because he was just Michael Brashler. Everybody in town knew them as the Brashlers. There was never a distinction because they weren't born from my grandma and my grandpa that they weren't part of the family. They were just accepted as part of the family. They referred to them as mom and dad. When Eric, the troublemaker, would, would come home, 
and he'd be talking to grandma as a 25-year-old adult. Grandma would say, well, you're looking good. Now let's go get you a haircut. She wasn't talking to a stranger. She was talking to her son. And so it's that, it's that idea that you come in and something about that connection you make with that family makes you part of the family. And the connection that we have is a connection of who we are in Jesus Christ. Those who are Jesus' disciples are the true sons of God and are free from the temple tax. And those who reject him are not the true sons of God and they are not free. See, again, I'll, I'll say what the people in Jesus' time do not know and what Peter and the, fathers don't, and the followers don't fully recognize is this. The temple will pass away. The temple will be replaced, and it's going to be replaced by Jesus himself as the true meeting place for God. The true children of God, the true followers of Jesus, are free because Jesus is taking the place of the temple. Remember later in Matthew, Jesus says, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it again in three days. Now we know today he was referring to his body. Jesus himself was the new meeting place for people to meet God. There they couldn't fathom tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days because they didn't realize that what they thought of as a temple was no longer going to be considered that. Jesus was now the new temple. Jesus was the new meeting place with God. Back in chapter 12, Jesus tells the Pharisees, something greater than the temple is here when he refers to himself. Place was giving way to the person of Jesus Christ. The sons are free because the sons are discovering that the age of the temple in Jerusalem is over and the age of coming to God through Jesus is now beginning. Those who trust and follow Jesus as the Son of God are the true children of God and therefore free from the old system. Now this does not mean that we no longer care about the ministry of worship. It means we come to God in our worship by coming to Jesus. No more need to pay for the animals for blood sacrifice because the Lamb of God has paid the ultimate blood sacrifice for you and for I. But I don't want to go too far. Because sometimes it can be tempting when you hear that you are not obligated to do something as, I'm not doing it. I know that's sometimes where my brain goes, goes to right away. Jesus is teaching Peter that we are no longer obligated to pay the tax but that doesn't necessarily mean we won't pay the tax. When he says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now this is a unique miracle. It just kind of shows up in the middle of nowhere. It's only recorded in Matthew. I think it's the only miracle that uses money directly like this. It's the only miracle Jesus performed to meet his own needs. It's the only miracle that just uses one fish. Jesus is more of a 5,000 fish kind of guy, you know, he's, you know or enough to feed 5,000 people, not a one fish kind of guy. What's the point of this miracle right here? Remember, Jesus has just declared his disciples to be sons of the Father. They're free. They don't have to take, pay the tax. But if you're a Jew living in Jesus' time and it suddenly gets out that Jesus is telling people they don't have to pay the tax anymore, you're going to be accused of blasphemy. You're going to be said as somebody who doesn't think that the sacrifices are meant for them anymore. You are going to be somebody who is on the outside and there is nobody who is ever going to listen to you again. They might even stone you for what you're saying. And remember, as I said, Peter just realized who Jesus is. The disciples are just wrapping their heads around the identity of Christ and what that means for their identity in Christ. 
This concept of not complying with the Old Testament rules or even needing the temple is brand new to them as well. And they're the people who get it. I can't imagine the other people would understand it at this point. If people who've been with Jesus for years don't understand, how, how could anyone else possibly understand? It would be nothing more than a stumbling block. And what would it be a stumbling block for? To be right? It just isn't something they can comprehend. Carl and I were talking yesterday about how kids are taught to write. And you know, you get those things home, you know, a little... Little Johnny wrote a, wrote a paragraph today, but the paragraph is really one sentence that said, you know, I like Fortnite, I like it a lot. My mom says, I am a good boy. And it has these very broken sentences, and uh, sometimes uh, they, they use the wrong word the wrong way, but that's not the point of the lesson in the beginning. The point in the lesson is to have a start of a sentence, an end of a sentence, a period would be great, but we're not counting on it. Some teachers say spelling, yes. Some teachers say spelling, well, we'll let it go. They'll, they'll, they'll get it eventually, you know. And then you get into high school. And they're like, you know, actually even in, in, in middle school, it's what, post-participle, past-participle subjects and predicates. And you guys are like, man, I haven't used those words in years. Nobody does. Just English teachers. And then you go to college. And they teach you about footnotes and, and, and just horrible things, you know. It's, it drives you out of your mind. Sometimes I want to go back to Bobby is good because his mom says so. I didn't get the period in there, but I really meant it. I wasn't ready for the bigger lessons. Now, if you follow Vince on Facebook, sometimes he posts things from the papers his students write. Some of them aren't ready for the bigger lessons either. <laughs> but he's taking care of that, so that's good. Jesus meets us at our point of need, but Jesus also meets us at our point of awareness. Doesn't mean he's going to leave us there. He's not going to leave you there. That would be a waste of your time and his time, wouldn't it? Jesus is going to challenge you to the next step. Him declaring he's not going to pay the tax was not the next step for that community, and he knew it as such. But he needed Peter to know that there was no obligation to do that. So Peter had one growth curve he had to hit, which was that new identity he has in Christ. But there was no lesson for the other people that day, except that Jesus was a good Jewish member of the Jewish, a good member of the Jewish community, a good man before God. Jesus knows and tells Peter, this isn't an argument worth having. Look at Jesus' entire life on earth. When Jesus finds someone in real need, he touches them with compassion. When Jesus finds someone whose need is because they're caught up in sin, he doesn't ignore the sin, but he approaches it in a loving way. He still challenges them. It's not easy for the woman at the well to hear Jesus say, that's right, you've lived with five guys and the guy you're with today isn't your husband. That's a hard thing to hear, but Jesus does it in a way where he's not tearing her down, he's not another person who's going to look down on her as garbage, but he's someone who's going to give her a sense of hope. When Jesus comes against people who are in authority, who are in leadership, who should know better but aren't doing the better, now he's ready to argue. The, the, the gloves come off sometimes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, you don't open a line with, you brood of vipers, and hope they understand. 
So all through his ministry, when he's come across somebody, he has known how to approach their point of need. Or when the point of the need of the community outweighs the need of the individual, like he sometimes does with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But in areas where Jesus' personal rights, his, personal, his civil liberties, as it were, were violated, he weighs his heavenly rights with his earthly obligation. And I think that's what he calls us to as well. There are times, and I, I share this with work all the time, you can be right or you can be effective, but sometimes you can't be both. And Jesus knew that very well. His entire life from birth on, on through was a time of giving up his rights for the greater needs of the heavenly mission. And so he looks at this as just another opportunity to teach and show Peter and others that there are times when, even though you don't have this obligation to you, it's just the right thing to do right now. Paul said it this way, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Greek I became a Greek. I flexed as much as I am allowed to by my Heavenly Father within reason. And in some ways Paul goes native and doing things he probably didn't need to do, but it was for the cause of Christ. I don't remember, I, th I think it's in Corinthians, um, Paul talks about uh, how it, he, uh, Corinthians or Thessalonians, he talks about um, how he earns his pay. And talks about taking up the, the uh, uh, offering all the at the churches and how he's going to send it out for missionary work all over the place. And he says, I don't take a check from you guys. I don't get a paycheck for being the pastor of this church. He says, I could. It's my right to do. You are obligated to pay me, but I don't do it. Paul had, you know, what do the kids call it these days? Side hustle? Uh, a gig economy. Paul had his own entrepreneur in this. He, he, he was a tent maker. He went and he made tents. Now that was great to give the money back to the entire ministry, but can you imagine what it meant to that entire community to know that there was this guy who came in and delivered the tents and did all this and made sure the size was right and everything else? And it's like, well, that's actually not his job. He's actually a pastor. He does this as well. That speaks volumes to a community. I used to know a guy that was a pastor in a small town and uh, he was having trouble connecting with them, and an older pastor came by, and he says, who cuts your grass? He's like, well, one of the elders, and he cuts them off. He goes, today you cut your grass. Starting from here on out, you're cutting your own grass. And he's like, and where, where are you at 5 o'clock in the morning? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm in bed. Or, he's like, no, no, you're at, the, you're at the farmer's table, the local coffee shop, and you're hanging out with the farmers every day at 5 o'clock in the morning. And he said, what happens when those guys have got harvest coming in? And I said, go get a CDL, because now this is what you're going to, this is, this is your job. Were any of those obligations of the pastoral duties? Wasn't in the job description. But he was saying, you need to extend yourself out in ways you're not obligated to do so that people can receive you and that they can receive you very well. And that's the lesson. I always love Rick Warren as a pastor. He wrote the book Purpose Driven Life. You may have heard of it 10, 15 years ago. It got really popular. And Rick is just a good nerd pastor in California. He's got his, I think, his F-150 pickup truck from like 1983 that he loves and just kind of hangs out. Uh, Rick always took a pastor while he was, as he's pastored that church. But then Purpose Driven Life was a book he wrote, and he didn't expect it to be as big as it was, and it went crazy. And he all of a sudden had all this money coming in. And so he went to his Sherilyn. Everybody has a Sherilyn if they're doing it right. And he said, can you calculate for me how much money this church has paid me since the day I took the role? 
because I'd like to write a check and pay that all back to the church. Now there, Cheryl Lynn went, here it is, right here, you know. <laughs> and they said, you're off by 23 cents. You can owe that to me later. No. But it was great when he got to stand before people and people said, what do you take for a salary? And he was honest about it. He says, I used to, but when I found I didn't need any more, I stopped it. And in fact, I paid back all of that. Now those are, are great ways that people just were generous with what they were doing. And it's a little bit different than what Jesus is talking about here. But it's that idea that just because something's obligated to me doesn't mean I have to take it. And just because I'm not obligated to do something means I can walk away for it. There are causes and debates all of us can get pulled into in the workplace. We can get pulled into them in our friendships and our communities. We can get pulled into online. And all that is is just a fight wrapped up in what's good for Bob. But I have to remember Bob's ultimate citizenship isn't in Aurora, isn't in Kane County, isn't in the U.S., it's not even on this earth. I am an ambassador to this world representing my true home, which is in heaven. And so we can say, in heaven there may be waiting for me a house with many rooms. There may be even a crown, and I'm hoping it has at least one jewel in it. But here on earth, that homeowners association, they want those cans picked up by 6 p.m., so do it. Your town may say, I don't want you to park on the streets, so pull the car off the streets. Don't start the offense because you feel like you have, are the one in the right. That's what Jesus is really doing here. William Barclay said, the Christian who exempts himself from the duties, who exempts himself from the duties of good citizenship is not only failing in citizenship, he is also failing at Christianity. Now nobody at this point could understand how Jesus could be greater than the temple. This is a pre-cross, pre-resurrection world. Jesus knew the tax collectors couldn't understand this, as we've already talked about. And if the lesson ended right here, Peter might conclude, Jesus is a good guy. He's going to do something that shouldn't even be asked of him. So Jesus does something incredible to back up his declaration. And that's in verse uh, 27. However, not to give offense, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Unbelievable. A coin worth four or five days worth of income found in a fish's mouth. How many of you would like to head to the fox right now and see if we can grab $1,000? Little side note here. I, I always find this interesting. This is at least twice in their relationship. Jesus the carpenter gives Peter the fisherman instructions on how to fish. Now, for me, there's a lesson in there in our strengths versus God's wisdom, but you guys can put that together yourself, okay? So Jesus tells them, put a line in the water with a hook on it. You're going to catch one fish. Just open that fish's mouth. Don't fillet him. Don't do anything like that. You'll find the precise amount that you need for you and for me. And you go ahead and take care of it. Now, Penn and Teller would have a really hard time explaining how Jesus pulled this trick off. Someone would have had to drop their paycheck in a lake. A random fish would have to see this paycheck and grab it, but hold it in its mouth without swallowing, and then it has to find Peter's hook and grab it, and Peter has to look in the mouth of the fish, which is not something you normally do unless the hook went way down to get that fish out of there. Now, you guys from Wisconsin have told some fish stories, I'm sure, but I don't think you've ever pulled this one off. The only conclusion is that God alone must orchestrate something like this. And I really think that's one of the big purposes of this miracle. To go beyond a shadow of a doubt to say, something we're not obligated to do, we're going to do, but God is going to provide the avenue for us to do it. 
And at this point, Jesus' statements are not from some crazy person. They're not statements that are somebody who's nice, but these are statements that are founded in the authority of God who has sovereignty and control over everything, including what a fish chooses to eat that day. Remember back in chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralytic, and the Pharisees get upset. Why do they get upset? Because instead of saying, you're healed, he says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise up, pick up your bed, and walk. The muscles and the nerves inside this man's body spring to life at Christ's authority over sin, over everything in our lives. Jesus is trying to get us to understand that his authority doesn't come from anything on this earth. It doesn't come from where he went to school or anything else, but it comes from our Father in heaven. And as sons, that's where our abilities to see an obligation and determine if it's ours or not, but to fulfill it anyhow, come through. How do you know that Jesus had the divine power to forgive sins? Because he did something only God could do when he healed that man. How do you know that Jesus has the divine power to declare to his followers that they are children of God and are free from having to support the temple, free from the guilt and sin offerings, free from slaughtering animals? He did something only God could do. He sovereignly controlled the coin, finding its way into a water, into a fish. Peter fishing in the exact, exact same spot to find this fish and eventually pay the tax. When you and I act in freedom and in love, not under coercion or constraint, God himself works for you and I in ways you would never dream. It's similar to feeding the 5,000. Jesus says to the disciples who have five loaves and two fish borrowed from the little boy, you feed the 5,000. And when they begin to feed the 5,000, God caused those five loaves and two fish to become enough to feed them all. And God causes a coin to be there in a fish's mouth. But you have to take that first step. And the point of all of this is not that God will always work a miracle to get you out of some scrape, but that he will do whatever he has to do to help you pursue the path of freedom and sacrificial love so that it may seem possible to you for God to do the impossible. Now, there's one part of this that I left out, and that was actually all the way back at the verses 22 and 23. It says, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. This sovereign Christ, who governs the drop of a coin in the path of a fish, has set his face toward Jerusalem and death. Why? To purchase for us sinners the glorious thing that we've all been talking about. You and I can't become children of God on our own. We're sinners. We don't have the rights, nor do we deserve to find a coin in a fish's mouth. We deserve much worse. We're not free from the condemnation of the law. We're under the curse of the law, unless the Son of Man himself freely gives a substitute for us on the cross and purchases for us forgiveness from all sin and escape from all hell and from all condemnation. Time and time again, when Jesus throughout Matthew uh, recognizes what's going to happen to him, he, this is the second, I think there's three total where he tells them, he always ties it back to a moment, a teaching moment with them to show them a little bit about what it means. Because it would be horrible to hear that this person you love, the person you spent three years with, is willingly walking to his death, and you don't fully understand why. And we all know they won't fully understand why until the other side of the cross, the other side of the resurrection. But Jesus wants them all to know that there's purpose in this. There's method in this. And it's a salvation 
and a new life that's very personal and personal for all. And later in Matthew, he's going to give us a way to be reminded over and over again that you and I were bought at a great cost, that our lives are not free in our own, and that is done through communion. John Wesley talks about communion, and he says, communion is that opportunity you have to be reminded of your dependence of God, reminded that your strength comes from God, and reminded how much you need God, and every time you forget that you need God that much, you should probably take communion right then and there. And Wesley said, there's times I take communion three times a week, there's times I take communion eight times a week, but every time I need to take a moment and remind myself of who I am in Christ Jesus and who I am because of Christ Jesus, I come to the foot of the cross, and I take the bread, and I take the cup, and he reminds me once again. This morning, we're going to have an opportunity to do that. We'll have stations throughout the area where you'll come up and break the bread and dip it in, in, the, uh, in the wine. But on your table, there are these white sheets of paper, little slips of paper. This is an opportunity for you to share anything that you really want to set, talk to God about during communion. This can be a prayer request or a confession that you don't want anybody else to see. 